0: If you're not ready to change gear neurologically, this podcast is not for you. These particularly challenging times can actually be seen as a life-giving opportunity for expansion, disguised as an impossible situation. As we grow into our own wholeness through this global great awakening, we are more aware than ever that we are all one. Join with us to raise the collective consciousness, whole and one. You've got this. Here's your host, Sheila E. Herine.
1: Hello and welcome, everyone, to Whole and One with Sheila. You're tuned to Voice America's Empowerment Channel. And the objective of this particular series of podcasts is to introduce you to a variety of people and ideas that will bring you ever closer to mind derived health optimization. To that end, This light-bearing series of radio shows aims to teach you three main things, namely how to manage your self-talk, how to build a healthy relationship with anxiety, and how to rewrite your narrative. Tell yourself that different story. It's just like doing a bicep curl for your brain. And how exactly do we propose to enlighten our listenership to these nuggets of wellness, I hear you ask? Well, simply through storytelling and story sharing. Stories heal. Join us weekly to hear the stories of love, wisdom, and truth that have completely changed the lives of our specially selected guests. Listen out for your story in ours. And remember, guys, nothing has any meaning except the meaning that you give it. We're joined on today's show by Richard Hogan from Cork in Ireland, now living in Dublin. Richard is a clinical psychotherapist. He's an author and he's founder of a charity called Embrace Philippines, which provides education, medical help and food for children in the Badger tribe. Richard has very prestigiously recently been awarded a Fulbright scholarship, which, amongst many other things, he's going to tell us all about in this interview. Richard, you're very welcome to the show.
2: Sheila, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Oh, me too. Great to chat now at this stage. We chatted before, Richard. And I was going to uh, begin our interview today, if it was all right with yourself, by asking you to explain to us and share with us how you went from educator to psychologist and psychotherapist and what you feel uh, the synergies are between the two.
2: Yeah, thanks, Sheila. I started off my um, career, I suppose, as a teacher many, many years ago. and I, I, it kind of actually happened when I started my undergrad, I was doing psychology, and my undergrad is four you know you, you have to pick four subjects, and psychology was in there, and i 've always had an interest in why we do the things we do and how we talk to ourselves and the, sto- the stories that we tell ourselves and I suppose the family that I grew up in myself was a very important part of wanting to get into education and when I, when I think about that early educational life i suppose subject interest in english and all that stuff was there but it was really about connecting with students and connecting when i you know i suppose you can't do a course like i did a four years systemic masters in systemic psychotherapy with you know the matter hospital and ucd without really examining yourself and so you you get to look at what is the impulse that drives you towards this profession or what was the impl- influence that got you into this profession that you started off with and for me definitely it was um family that i came out of and the difficulties i suppose in that family and you know i I grew up in a in a house where my father was pretty well known and he was a journalist for the irish times the Munster correspondent but living in his relationship was a different story for for us as children and it it was quite difficult and there was addiction present and and so growing up as a teenager it was um it was very challenging to say the least and when i was in school uh, you know i suppose I, i was i was a challenging child myself to manage in school And I was waiting for someone to say, you know, what's going on? But no one ever asked that question. They only ever saw the behavior that they never asked, you know, why is the behavior present? And so when I got into education, and I do have a love of English and history and all that, but I was really, I, I suppose when I look at it, I was really interested in speaking to that child myself. I was looking to give other students... To be that voice to ask students you know what, what what is going on to see beyond the behavior and to see the student and to see the ecologies that the student comes from and the and the depth of their you know the systems that they're navigating and the influence that has on them and their behavior in the classroom now i didn't have the language for that as a teacher i just knew i wanted to help students and and to give them a voice and give maybe voice to students a voice so as, as i got into my education career and i was moving more for you know into into teaching Students were coming to me more and more and more with, with issues and presenting with me and parents were ringing me more and more and more in the school. And the principal noticed that and said, listen, you, you know, you've got this relationship with the students, um, which is, you know, it's, 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 it's quite deep. And they're, they're, they, they really trust you and they see something in you that they feel that they can talk to you about it. Why don't you think about doing something to help you, you know, develop that skill? So I was lucky that I had someone who was a boss who saw that in me because I don't know, did I see it myself? You know, my friends would say to me when I was young, friends would ask me for advice and all that kind of stuff. And they might come to me about different ideas. And my girlfriend, who's not my wife, would say to me, God, people really kind of seek you out when they're looking for, you know, things. And I suppose it just made sense. And I was like, yeah, God, I'd love to do something like that. And I went off and researched it. And I came across this incredible course called uh, Systemic Family Psychotherapy, Systems Theory about you know, the systems that we navigate. And that's how I transitioned from education into into kind of into psychotherapy. But what I what I found when I was going through the course, Sheila, is that I was gaining language for what I already kind of felt or what I was thinking. I just I was getting the kind of the language for what I was feeling and thinking. And I just found the literature around systemic psychotherapy. It was just incredible. The four years in the matter hospital with UCD. It was just some of the most enriching in life changing moments of my life and you start by looking at yourself and you never stop looking at yourself so you become really self-reflective and yeah that's that's kind of the genesis of my of my movement but always that teenager in me is there you know he's always driving me forward in my pursuit of inclusivity I as you said there I, I was awarded a Fulbright scholarship this year well 2020 for um for my work with inclusivity in schools in American, in American and Irish schools and I'm going to America this summer to carry out a piece of research with it. And it's all about giving voices to people and helping teachers to see uh, behavior in a different way. And as I was, as I was doing the masters, I, I, I was really thinking to myself, I can't believe teachers don't know this stuff. You know, teachers don't get trained in this stuff. And, uh, and I work with DCU and I, 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 I uh, deliver a class on the self to students, to student teachers and it's always you know they always come back to me and say you know that was just so practical and really helped me and it made me see i see behavior and identity in myself in a different way and so that changes inclusivity because it's it's a concept you know it's an, it's a very important concept how do we go about it's very good to say we're an inclusive society but how do we actually go about including students in our class especially students students who are difficult
1: sure sure and i think it's very significant that um while you were self-soothing on your course and understanding that this was something you always had knowledge of you just didn't necessarily you hadn't found the book as such that yeah. you're now taking yeah. that information and you're speaking to students in a way that is resonating with them and you can so understand how exciting and enlightening it is for them because you were that person what are you thinking uh, richard at the moment regarding the resilience of the young adults of our world today
2: Yeah, it's a very good question, Sheila. It's something I write about a lot. You know, I'm a columnist for the Irish Examiner. I write every week about all these things for families. And um, I suppose what I've noticed really hugely in my clinic is that young adults are coming in seeking out, out therapy because they can't manage what we'd say the normative strains of life, or, you know, the slings and arrows of life that would have been normal in college, they, they find that very difficult. And I was analysing this, what's going on amongst these like 18 to 24-year-olds, that they can't manage what would have normally been, you know, just the ups and downs of life. I suppose in my analysis, what I came to looking at it and, and talking with parents and families and then interviewing students, because when I wrote the book in the Screen Rager, I went around to 25 schools interviewing students and asking them about, you know, just figuring out about their behaviour on their games, but also about, you know, how they come to talk to themselves and how they how they think. And I suppose what I found in all that research is that I came up with this idea of parenting from a position of guilt. I think, and I think women really suffer with this, more, maybe perhaps more than men, that when we look at how we parent and we look at the time that we have with our children, um, in the business of today's world and the financial demands that are placed on us as a couple and particularly on a woman I think and I think you know women get a really sh- short straw here because I think they suffer with so much narratives that they tell themselves that society feeds in about being the good daughter the good wife you know the good the, the good. you know everybody you, you're just always the good girl you know and I think what I noticed is that mothers in particularly find it difficult when they've been working all week not to acquiesce and give in to their son or daughter because they feel guilty that they haven't been with them as much as they would like to or they they compare themselves to what their mother did uh, for for mothering them and they see that their mother was but it was a different and completely different world and an incredibly different world for them to to parent in and so this world is demanding in so many ways and the financial demands and just the emotional demands in a woman in, in in the house and everything it's just incredible and so what I was noticing here and it's not to blame mothers uh, obviously fathers are in here too, but what, what I saw is that in all the stories that I was talking about resilience and I was writing a chapter on resilience and I was looking at what, what makes one child more resilient than another. Well, I thought what was really eroding resilience is over-parenting and taking away obstacles from our children. So when they present with an issue, um, you know, out of that position of guilt and feeling, you know, that you're not there enough for them, you 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 immediately solve the problem for your child and what you're doing then is you're taking away a gift of learning. So, you know, it's like, this is, this is an analogy I always give to parents when they come in to me and ask me, how can we build resilience? They'd say, well, tell me how you taught your child how to cross the road and they go through the same. I walk down to the traffic lights, I hold their hand, I look at the cars I tell them the cars are transient, the cars are going to pass and then I pre- we press the light and then we can cross the road quickly. And I say, so, right, that's perfect. That's a great example. Why are you doing that? And they say, well, because I know I won't always be around and I want little John to be able to cross the road safely. And so when I'm not there, I want him to make the right decisions. That's what, that's what any of us want to do as parents. Mm. You know, teach your children how to make the right decision when we're not around because we'll never, we're, we're not always going to be around. But so when it comes to resilience, what's happening is the opposite. When we remove the obstacle, when they come home and they say they don't want to do their homework or they want a note for this or they don't want that, and we do it and we solve it or they say they have been bullied and we go down then we sort out the problem, you know, we're removing those moments so they don't have the skills. They don't have the competencies. So they begin to have this internal monologue. I'm not that competent. I'm not so, you know, I don't have this resources. I don't have this wellspring to manage myself. And so as they get a little bit older, they know they don't have it because it's always been removed. So they become fearful of stuff. And that's where anxiety kind of creeps in when they believe they don't have the skills to manage something. This anxiety, this constant state of kind of anxiousness that something really bad is going to happen. You know, and that's the difference between a resilient child and a child that lacks resilience. There's a real myth around it, Sheila, that, you know, we're, we're just born with resilience and one child isn't born. That's such an error in thinking. You know, we model for our children how to of be course. resilient. Mm-hmm. We teach them how to be resilient, you know, and we take it from them as well when we, when, when we solve their problems for them. And so what I would always say to parents is you have to be by their side, not on their side. And when you're by their side, you're listening to them. You're not solving. You're, you, you might support them and, and help them to come to the conclusions themselves, but you're not saying, I have that, I'll solve that for you. Because you'd never set your child down at the traffic light, don't worry about those cars, I'll always be here. Because absolutely. you know you're not going to be. And when they go down eventually, they're going to get hit. Of course. You know?
1: so, absolutely. What a fabulous analogy, Richard. And so they're learning vicariously all the time. And it's really at that level that we need to be very careful as parents to right. realize that everything that we do all of our own habits and practices are being watched and mocked up by our children so even when we for example would suggest uh, that we might like um you know a, a policy around screens in our home because your book is absolutely amazing a bible for family for Thank for family members and educators so as an educator a psychotherapist uh, and a parent i can i've read it and i can hugely Thank and you. highly recommend it. it's absolutely amazing um and, and I suppose when we consider that we might as parents then think we're doing the very best thing for our children and propose, for example, because we're aware that screen time should be limited. And we as adults know why. And we're aware of when we expose ourselves to um, the, that blue light between those darkened hours within our circadian rhythm, particularly between 11 and 4, how injurious that is to our quality sleep and therefore how injurious that is to our health and wellness, physically, emotionally and mentally, um, You know, not least because children aren't exposing themselves to lux when the sun rises and lux when the sun is setting and all of the things that we know as adults. And so we think we're doing a wonderful thing by proposing a family policy around screen time. And yet we're on our phones and we're on our laptops. And it's very difficult for them to see that it's fair that they would need to put down their screens at a certain time when we seem to be on ours all the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the teenage and adolescent world have a heightened sense of hypocrisy, right? And they're always looking to see, you know, if the adult world is of its word. And it's very, it's 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 almost it's a futile exercise to bring in policies into the house if you yourself aren't. Following them, and when parents, because of the book, I suppose I get a lot of parents coming to me around devices, and I always feel they're a little bit flat at the end of the session because the session is about them, really, and not the yes. kids. They were hoping that the session is going to be about little John and his really bad habit, but yeah. really, you know, I look at the self, I, I look at the self-deceptive uh, policies in the family because. As a systemic family psychotherapist, you're you're always looking at homeostasis, like balance. How is the balance maintained? How is this issue? How is this issue being you know maintained? And so I'm never looking at the behavior as as uh, you know as the main uh, result here. I'm looking at what has caused it, what has caused it to be present, and then you have to go in there and look at that. And I suppose the first thing is always, you know, the parents. Reliance on technology. And so I'm bringing them to contact with their own issues with technology because we fall into a kind of a comfortable pattern where we say little John can go gaming there for four hours while I'm making the dinner and watching TV and all the rest of Carnation Street. And then I want him to come down and talk to us. You know, so you're outsourcing your parenting to the game, which is a very negative thing. And then you're saying, well, I want him to talk to me now. So there's no policy in the house at all. And you're you're placing all the locus of the issue with John and his gaming, but you're not seeing your own behavior in here and how it's maintaining it. And so it's very important that we look at self-deception. You know, you can't sit there and tell your son, this is what I hear by children all the time, you know, dad says to get off my phone, you know, but he's on his all the time. But he says it's just emails because it's just work. Yes. You know, so they, they have a real heightened sense of like, you know, the hypocrisy, but also as a family, you have to have a very coherent and, um, you know, inclusive policy where the child feels also that they're a part of it. But also the parent is bought in and the parent is doing the same thing. So sure. It's not just for one.
1: Absolutely. There's an element, I suppose, of systems thinking in it as well, isn't there, Richard? And looking oh, to see is, what is the real problem so that you're yeah, not yeah. spending a long time solving something maybe quite well and, and maybe it would look really well if you did a little visual of the great work that you did as a family, but perhaps it isn't the real problem. So you need to check and see what's precipitating what as well to make yeah. sure that the quality time um, in aiming for a resolution is going into what is the real problem. So um, I suppose a little bit of an occupational hazard of our time, uh, these the screens that parents are, I suppose, victims to as well as their children. Um, and in fairness to all of us as parents and um, and educators now schooling from home, uh, having been for the last year and a half, and, and things will never go back to the way they were, no matter what happens. We don't even want them to. It's regrowth we're looking for as opposed to um, there's no such thing really as recovery. We don't want to go back to where we were, but we need to move from here very positively for everybody's health and wellness. And I'm wondering what your take is then on um. The side effects and the occupational hazards then of the screen time that children have been, have had exposure to over the last year and a half and what addictions they have fallen into, Richard, that it's going to be quite difficult Mm. for us, but we absolutely have to work towards um, helping them to come out of now.
2: Yeah, thanks, Sheila. That's a good question. I think, first of all, it's very important. And, you know, my book is absolutely not about bashing technology. You know, technology is is helping us to live longer. Technology is connecting us right now, Sheila. Technology is solving the problem of the, of the COVID coronavirus. You know, it's the vaccine rollout has been the quickest. It's been the quickest rollout of a vaccine to any mental health uh, problem you know the world has ever seen. So this is all technology, and so it's not about bashing it, but it's it's about also understanding that these devices and these multiplayer games they are a particular thing and they are immersive. And the World Health Organization in 2018 came up about these games and said that they are a new mental health condition. And anyone working in a service or working like myself in schools and, and in uh, clinically speaking would see the deleterious impact that these things have on children when they're unchecked. And that's the, that's the key thing to say when they're unchecked, because, you know, not everybody who plays a game is going to become addicted. Not everyone who's on their devices is addicted, but they are immersive and they are designed in a certain way that it they help us to escape from reality. So if you have a rupture in your peer group or a rupture in your family or there's something negatively going on there in your life, it's the perfect storm to disappear into. And it does. Purport, it does. It does. You know, impact parts of the brain that promotes reward and, and uh, happiness. So, like you know, that's addiction when it's Absolutely. mood changing. When it's mood changing, so it's it's really about having a healthy policy that allows for gaming to be in the family and also real family life to be there at the same time, so the two things can coexist peacefully. Because a child, generally, now some children can, but most children that I know from doing my research for the book can't manage this thing. It's too powerful. You know, when a when a when a message comes in at two o'clock in the morning, a Snapchat pings or whatever it is, it's just too powerful for you not to look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Because no matter what it is, even if it's a notification, your brain gets a little bit of a dopamine hit. It just gets a little bit of a excitement. Something's happening. Something out there is happening, and I'm being drawn into it. And it's too powerful for a 12, 13 year old not to look at it. It's too powerful for us as adults not to look at. Not to mind a child and their brain forming and all that. So again, it's about having a, a you know a sensible policy in the family. But the big thing I would have seen seen over the last 14 months is the impact it's had on sleep routine. You know, it's had a huge impact on sleep routine. The COVID, you know, the coronavirus and COVID-19, all that has eroded all kind of, patterns of normal kind of routine and you put on top of that then gaming at nighttime or going on your device and blue screen late at night it's going to impact melatonin production and it's going to as you said yourself the circadian clock it's going to impact all that and then the next morning you wake up and you feel groggy you don't feel so good and you just go back onto your device again you're not going to feel good Mm -hmm. i've had so many you know i work a lot in the corporate space as well i've had so many people contact me about you know i'm working from home and i feel really terrible and the first question i say to them is like, well, what's your routine for working at home? And they'd say, I just roll over when I wake up and I go on my device till seven o'clock. And then I get off that and I go on my computer or my phone and then I go to bed. I'm like, well, are you getting outside? Are you opening up the curtains? Is your workspace different from where you're sleeping? Are you going for a shower? Are you going for a walk in the morning? Are you getting yourself like, you know, a sense of separation from your house? And they're like, no, I'm, just, I'm stuck in this habit. And they're like, well, how is that going for you? you know, so you stop that, right? And you get into the positive. And you, you do that for a week and see how you feel. You get up in the morning, go for a walk, go for a jog, come back, have a shower, start your working day. Don't go on your devices. Get a bit of vitamin C into you. Eat well and healthy and sleep well and, and separate out your workspace from mm-hmm. your, where you sleep and have good sleep hygiene. Put good things into practice during the day to make you sleep at nighttime and get off your devices by seven o'clock. And read before going to sleep. Now, see how you feel after a week of that. And, you know, that. And that's the thing about being an adult, I suppose. We have to always be kind of looking at what makes us good and what makes us bad. You know, when you have a bad day, I'd, I'd analyze and say, well, what is it about today that I'm not feeling myself? And I know, you know, leading up to it, I put a few things into practice there that weren't so healthy for myself or mm. I didn't eat so well or I didn't do a bit of exercise or, you know, I was on my device too late at night or I'm thinking about too many things. You know, so we, we know the things that are kind of impacting us. Children don't really. They don't, they don't analyze it like that. They don't know why they're feeling so bad. They don't know why they don't want to go to school, but they just don't want to go. And that, that's what I'd say I've seen is like the massive impact on sleep that these devices are having.
1: Oh, it's just absolutely huge. And it seems a little bit passé to kids, They, you know, because they've heard it so many times. But like you say, they don't necessarily understand. Perhaps we haven't stopped to take the time to really genuinely explain that this is Nobel Prize winning science. This is actually why you're not feeling good. You know, and mm-hmm. I suppose I, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you that there is a big comparison between all of our kids, we say between 0 and 25, let's presume, while, while the brain is still quite plastic, let's, co- you know, I don't know if our young adults would like us to um lob them all into one group, but let's, for the purpose of the chat, say that there is that uh, comparative base there between all of uh, 0 to 25s, but there are some delineations as well. So our primary school children genuinely don't understand this because sleep and bedtime it always seems a bit like a punishment because they want to continue playing. But we can, when they're very young, have routines and practices in place. So bath time and story time can be like the call to quit for them. And they can fall into that lovely routine when we can be there and mind them and and, and guide them. Not so easy in the teenage years when children begin to, in a very natural way, as, as we do ancestrally, pull away from parents and gravitate more towards their peers. You know, they will want to be on their screens and they might pretend that they're not. But they absolutely are. They'll be hot spotting, even if Wi-Fi is turned off. And they—they're they, cute. They—they they know what they need to do for its survival at that stage. And then young adults, as you say. Um, perhaps trying to engage with their college courses, or even having started work and finding that they're just feeling meh, you know, just no motivational energy. But it's exactly like you say, Richard, they need to use their innate resources as well before they come and think they're unwell or can't go to work. You know, what have you done physically? What have you done? So I think um, it's very, very significant that you say, you know, delineate throughout Mm. your day. So And the Lord said, let there be lux. The first thing we can do is get up and within minutes of our awakening, get out into natural sunlight. Even on a cloud covered day, even on a rainy day, a snowy day, if it's within two hours of the sun rising, because of the level of the sun, you'll pick up the light photons and you will be feeling better in yourself and over a period of time. You'll prepare yourself then for sleep. And sleep is so restorative. Mm. So if we could perhaps bring this into family chats on occasions as well to help children to understand why we keep talking about sleep as being so healthy and it needs to be hygienic. You you told Mm. a very interesting story, Richard, on, on a former interview that a previous interview that you did around a client that you had who was studying medicine right yeah, yeah. would you share that with us i think it is so significant
2: sure yeah He was studying medicine down in cork and i had done a piece on tv here in ireland about gaming and the uh, disruption to uh normative patterns and, and, and it was I, I did a piece just after the world health organization came out and classified it as a mental health condition and um I got, a, I got a, an email from him saying he's coming up to the clinic. And so we had the first session and we had a conversation around it. And I could feel he was kind of guarded and all the rest of it. We had kind of a, a, an okay conversation. It wasn't very deep or anything. And the second session he came up and we were having a conversation. I just kind of stopped him in the middle of it and said, you know, if you're going to come all the way up, you might as well, you know, let's just, let's just get to it, you know, instead of going kind of going around this. Well, what's the trouble? And then he broke down. And what the story was, what, what was going on for him is that he had, um, he had actually dropped out of college. He was now, um, in, he had now, as his parents saw it, moved into second year. And they were paying for his accommodation down in Cork for medicine. And he hadn't finished his first year exams, he dropped out because of gaming. But his mm-hmm. parents thought he was still in school and that he was mm-hmm. in second year. And they're all proud of, we call him Jamie, right? And he's, you know, yeah. doing medicine. You know, what a, and what an incredible achievement to get medicine, you know, to, what, a, what an incredible amount of work he put into it to achieve this. And now this, this, these games, and his, he had a rupture in his peer group and all that, but these his games had been, had, had been the real disruptive thing here. And we, we hear stories about this in the football world as well, where like, you know, high-powered athletes who have trained their whole lives and all of a sudden they're not getting their game because they've, they've been literally playing their game mm-hmm. at home. And we hear these narratives coming out about professional footballers. So when I, when I met this kid, he was the closest to suicide I've ever met in a child. And he would contemplated it and he thought it and he thought it out, right? So when we um, I said to him, look, we're going to have to bring your parents in here and we're going to have to have a really, have, it's going to be a tough conversation, but we have, we have to have this conversation. And he agreed, and he brought his parents in, and it was an incredibly heavy, dense family therapy session. And he, he put it out there, and he, he, t- he told them, about, and they were incredibly supportive. And now he's back in college now, and he's, you know, he's, uh, what, what, year, what year is he in now? I don't know, third year or something. But he's back in college now, and he's, he's going forward with medicine. And it's just, where would that child have been? <laughs> the isolation, the sheer isolation that this game had brought into his life. You know, it had pushed me to a brink of like seeming hopeless. Mm-hmm. There's no way out of this. I've let everybody down. I'm ashamed. I'm shamed. I'm shameful of myself. Mm-hmm. And that's where I can go if it's unchecked. Absolutely. If there's, if there's a rupture, in, you know, there's, if there's a rupture in this peer group and there's a sense of isolation, these games are brilliant to kind of disappear into because you leave the real world behind. And that's why you need to, as a parent, kind of be careful of it. But you know, you were saying there, Sheila, it's a very important point about parenting your children. It gets harder, obviously, as they're moving to teenage years. And I was watching Tony's. I was watching The Sopranos, one of my favorite shows, there recently. And I saw this line again that really struck struck me when I saw it first. But the first time, in probably two thousand and one, and it's Tony and his wife are talking about their daughter Meadow, and she's given them a really difficult time. And he says to the wife, you know, if she, you know, he uses an expletive that I won't use here. He, he says, if she ever figures out that if she ever figures out that we've no power, we're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that is exactly what happens. From my perspective in teenage years, that's exactly what happens. And so you put the roots in very early on. Mm-hmm. So then you don't have to have this incredible power dynamic. Because Mikkel Foucault says, well, there's power, there's resistance. Sure if you don't if you don't ma- help your child to manage themselves and if you don't show your child r- rules and regulations not in a, not in a you know not in an in autocratic a way autocratic way or despotic way but just you know that they know that there's rules and there's con- there's consequences to behaviors and there's ramifications for things mm-hmm. if you're constantly saying yes 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 to your children all the time you're going to have incredibly difficult adolescent years because they're just going to demand demand and demand and so it's really important as a as a parent in those early years that you you form this child in a way that makes other people like them too sure. because when when a child gets all this yes all the time you know the patrick Kavanaugh line through through a chink too wide there comes in no wonder if they get too much if the chink is too wide if th- there's no wonder for them and they they want more and more it's a vacuous fill more mm. more 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 people won't want to be around them partners won't want to be with them and you, you'll have a very tough time as a parent, you know, managing this. And I see it myself massively in my clinic. You know, it's generally women who have to deal with this have to reparent their partner because, you know, they, they were given everything. And so they never know, know how to compromise. They don't know what no sounds like and they don't know how to kind of give a little bit. And so it, it creates huge conflict when they settle down with someone. And especially when you bring kids into the play uh, and you're rearing your own kids and you don't want to compromise and you've never had to you know, that's like, it's going to create huge problems.
1: Sure. I think that's probably the most significant part, Richard, that that if we don't learn our lessons when we're young and we're there with our parents who are there to pick us up before we fall and you know, hold our hearts in their hands while Mm. we're learning our lessons. We do have to learn them eventually anyway, because, you know, life won't suffer, you know, prisoners forever. We we need to, um, we really need to learn our lessons and be the best of ourselves as soon as we can. So interesting that you chat about when people try and set down relationships at a later stage, that's when the Cracks and Crevices show. And you had a fabulous, you were involved in a fabulous series of shows on RT recently. Oh yeah. Around uh, dining with the enemy. Will you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, um, I suppose the concept came from. I I, wrote, I was. I write a lot about free speech because in, in my work with teenagers, I see that like uh, a lot of them um, find it difficult to have conversations around difference. It's such a, an important part of being resilient being able to hear other people's points of view and be able to hear them in a dignified and respectful way. And I'd noticed over the years, there was a few instances that really struck me. John Boyne, the author of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, was bullied off Twitter because he, he wrote a book called, uh, I think it's my my brother's name is, Jennifer's about a transgendered person, anyway, and he got really, he got a really difficult time because they were saying to him, It wasn't your story to tell, you're not transgendered, how dare you tell the story? And I was like, God, this is a really difficult zeitgeist that we're in here, that, you know, difference, real difference isn't accepted here, that you can't have a difference of opinion. So when Virgin came to me with this idea of a show that was all about people with differing opinions sitting down having a conversation, my first reaction is, I'm not doing Jerry McHale. I'm not going to be a part of something that's sensationalist and people screaming at each other. I'm a very positive person and I don't want to be involved in anything that's like that or, or to humiliate someone on TV. And, you know, we know where that can go if, if it's, you know, if it's not ethical. And so, When I was talking to Shane Byrne, the producer, um, I could hear what his ideas were very much congruent to mine. I was like, I love the idea of the show. Sounds a fantastic concept. And then when I was a part of it and I was watching it take place, I was like, this is very much what society needs. And it was the most successful launch of an original. I think 320,000 people tuned in the first night to watch it. Um, Yeah, the numbers were great in it. And I think it tapped in because it had like, it's, it's went across a broad spectrum. We had people of all age and all color and all ethnicity and all gender and all creed. And, you know, it was just, it just covered everybody. And it, it was just, and of course, hopefully now there's a season two coming along. But um, it, it, I think it just tapped into something that people really, really were interested in. That's the idea of like free speech and the idea of people's opinions. And I, I, get, I get stopped still. as I find it funny in the street and, and I've got a mask on and someone stops me and says, you know, that priest with the transgender person, I thought that was super. I get that I get that a lot, <laughs> I get yeah. that a lot. like oh my yeah. god that's amazing first of all how they recognize me with the mask on and second of all the impact of like
1: oh it was you know, a yeah. uh, fabulous fabulous show because just mm. as, as we were chatting before we went on to chat about that about person types and you know it's in that scenario when you're breaking bread with somebody when you're sharing a space mm. with them you, you would become unaware of the cameras around because you, your own person type would come to the surface and you'd engage in the conversation and you'd you know it, it would exercise you if it needed to exercise you, albeit that mm. there are cameras there, you know, and we got to see people for what they really are. And I'm quite sure there was a lot of screamability from the couch around the country as people were watching it, saying, Oh no, you should say this. And, you know, it, it was yeah. very, it was a very real experience for those of us who yeah. are watching it from our homes. A fabulous, fabulous show as well, Richard, and a great opportunity. To learn about person types, which is, again, mm. what your book, um, Parenting the Screen is all about. It's helping us to understand that when we're setting down these habits and patterns in our teens, um, they are setting us up for a fall later if yeah. we if we can't learn our lessons at that early stage. Um, we chatted, obviously, about the, the addiction aspect of gaming. What about... Um, Other um, issues that teenagers and young adults are experiencing at the moment, probably coming from addiction as well um, and toxic environment and damaged uh, resources and or, I suppose, a dearth of coping skills, Richard, around, for example, self-harm and Mm. um, issues with eating.
2: Yeah, I suppose, yeah, issues with eating self-harm, I've seen an exponential rise in it in the last 14 months because of COVID. And, you know, with any of these, you know, a lot with eating is a lot about control. And when you especially when everything is so uncertain and everything seems that it's out of control, you look to the one thing, maybe if you had this behavior pattern before that you had, you look to the one thing that you you know that you can control. Or, you know, I've had so many teenage girls say to me, it, the best feeling of the day was my stomach rumbled. You know, that's that's the best feeling when my, when my stomach was rumbling. I, I felt like I, I had achieved something. So you kind of, as I like I wrote about this only two weeks ago and I got a lot of traction on it. And I was saying, we have to, as a society, really work. And I know it's something my wife and I said to her recently, we we're only chatting about it. And I said, it really helped me in my parenting. I've got three daughters. And um, it really helped me in my parenting. Cause she said to me one day, you know, we were watching something and um, we were watching The Voice, I think it was. And she said, she said to me after the show, we have to really watch how we comment on other people uh, as people observing people on TV. You have to really care. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, but just you have to be very careful that if you, if you comment on someone, say the, say if the singer was a certain size or whatever, and you comment on something, there's three girls sitting there, right? Because I've heard this so much. And I was like, when she said that to me, I was like, my God, that's, I've heard that so much in my clinic from young girls, beautiful young girls. I've heard them say the first time that that internalized voice began was when they heard their mother say something negative about someone on TV. And therefore the voice inside went, well, if you're not that, if you're that size, you're going to be that criticized as well. You're going to be someone who's laughed at. So they developed this really negative, you know, inner monologue. And when my wife said to me, it was one of those penetrating insights. I was like, you're absolutely right. We have to be very careful with, with girls that we celebrate every kind of body and that we're not commenting on anyone's body and that it's, it's nothing about, you know, um, food. And I've heard this so many times, so many times from young girls who have gone to hospital because of uh, anorexia that they look at food you know as calories not because of something that they like and that started on the fridge when they were young and they saw mom's calorie count for food and all the rest of it and so it starts so young in them and then then you hear neg- negative talk about people who are overweight or are a certain weight and it just builds this incredible tsunami of self-talk and self you know behaviors that are so difficult if you if you work clinically you just know how difficult it is to work with anorexia because the person with it is so resistant to it because mm. they see it as something very rewarding and something very fulfilling for them. Sure. Heartbreaking, Sheila. Honestly, it's some of the heart, some of the, the worst narratives I've I've dealt with. In a, you know, in clinically, you work with a lot of difficult situations. But to see a beautiful young girl talk about hating her legs and her shoulders and her nose and her eyes, and you sit there going kind of going, "My God, you're 15 years of age. You should be celebrating." You know. Been alive and celebrating your life and and the gift that you have in your hands here, and sure. they're just consumed with this superficial kind of way of looking at the world because they've been fed it for so long. You know. It's just, so
1: the body dysmorphia, Richard. What can we do? What can we do? And and people that are listening to this, the world over, are um, are all going to be you know tuning because everybody we all know whether we're educators, psychologists, psychotherapists, or parents, teachers, whatever, you know, we all know somebody um, who is, li- you know, teetering on the edge of mm. um, having a, a poor image of themselves. What can we do to help people with some? Yeah,
2: I, I, I really think, you know, we've seen we've seen in this country a huge, if we look at smoking, we've seen a huge, because of Miho Martin, you know, in 2004, got rid of this, brought in the smoking ban, which is an incredible thing that he brought into the country. And uh, we, I see it in schools. There's not so much smoking. It's there, but it's not like it was when I was in school. Everybody smoked, right? So we have to look at that and say, well, what happened there? Well, we changed the narrative around it. Right? We changed the narrative around it. And we hear a lot of things around, like, say, heteronormity. I don't know if you ever heard that concept of, like, you know, man and a woman is the normal thing. And we saw it, I saw it in the 80s as a kid growing up. It was always man and woman, man and woman, man and woman. So if you were gay or if you were bisexual or, you know, transgender, there was no room for you to be present in that society because it was very linear. It was just, you know, binary. It was one or two. That was, it was one or two. Um, so with with this, I think, and we see, I, I think like it's like an epidemic at the moment because of social media. I don't want to mention the word epidemic, but like I, I really think we have a tsunami here of uh, cases of of young girls and boys. And, you know, when I was writing my book, I actually put it right in there about perfectionism and I put a bit in there about steroid use because I've seen a huge, I did a bit of research on it and I contacted the Merchants Key Needle Exchange. And they were saying that, like, you know, there's a huge rise in um, young adults, young adult boys coming in using needles, not for drugs, but for steroids because they're going on a summer holiday and they want to, you know, get all the water out of their body. They want to have that defined, you know, six pack image that is so uh, sought after, let's say. And so, how do we change that? Well, I think if you think away the idea of heteronormity, and say like you know size zero normally has to go I mean I've seen shows there recently on TV and I was like kind of going this is beautiful they're bringing real people onto TV you know real people we're all none of us are like without blemishes none of us are are perfect none of us have the perfect skin or you know none of us have you know anything that's perfect about us and that's what's promoted in TV, and that's what causes. And that's what they say social media with its filters. When you're watching yourself on Zoom all day and you're kind of going, Well, that's good. I don't have a wrinkle here, and I don't have a, that's kind it makes you really conscious of it. And, and you know, and, and I think when your kids are on Snapchat all day and putting filters on, it does impact how they see themselves when they look in the mirror. And I hear it in my clinic all the time. They look in the mirror and they say, I hate looking in the mirror. I don't even look in the mirror anymore because I hate myself. I'm like, My God, I'm sitting across from a 17 year old beautiful young man, you know, um, and he's, he's talking this negatively to himself. So we have to really watch how we 're putting the messages out there on our on our Netflix and our TVs and our movies that we 're promoting a certain look or we 're promoting you know things like love island what a what a deleterious uh, show for young people 's minds to see highly buffed boys. And, uh, you know, very, very small girls walking around in bikinis all the time and say, well, that's the normal. Well, it's not the normal. That's people who have, you know, done incredible things, maybe even, you know, unhealthy things to get themselves into that into that shape for a particular couple of weeks. But kids are so impressionable. They see it and they think, God, why is my... They look down at their stomach and they think, why the hell is my stomach not so defined? Or why are my thighs not big enough? Or, you know, why, why is my nose this size? Or, I mean, and that's... A little, I think the selfie is a very good example of it all. We're, we're consumed with self. Pictures aren't going outwards. They're, in, they're going in all the time. And uh, yeah, I think we need to have a, a shift away from that. And it needs to start in our schools so how we educate kids around um, the idea of beauty. You know? and, um, and yet, by heaven, I think my love is rare as any. She belied with false compare. You know, Shakespeare says it. Blemishes are the real beauty. The, the real truth about someone's beauty is the, you know, is, it's not the filter. It's the real person.
1: Sure, absolutely. Oh, oh, to be living in a world where that's the norm. Richard, in terms, yeah, of, you know, let, let's aim for it, let's hope for it. And it's, it starts with conversations like this and and people writing themselves, the permissions slip then to be themselves mm. and not to post with filters um and not to feel the need to keep updating the selfie and comparing to others rather just to find their own happiness from within and i suppose that begins with getting in touch with their own vulnerability and accepting who they are and just falling in love with self Self self-care to fall in love with self is um it's a great place to start and the ripple effect is fantastic um I, I'm aware though that there are so many youngsters now whose parents, because they've helicoptered back in home, perhaps they were in college or maybe had started their work life. And I'm talking about the, the older teens and, and um, young adults in their early 20s. And I'm aware of a lot of uh, parents who are absolutely beside themselves with worry for their children who don't have a good relationship with food and who are losing weight unhealthily and uh, and literally have as you say got to the point where the rumbling tummy is their addiction Mm. so it's our amygdala you know is looking out for that which is most prevalent in our world so if we don't if we drink water regularly and then don't drink water the amygdala will remind us H2O levels are dropping, H2O levels are dropping. That's how it goes. But equally, it works in in a way that doesn't serve us. So if we have stopped eating and we leave the periods of fasting for longer and over longer periods of time, that's what our body becomes used to. And it becomes easier not to eat when we push Mm. through that pain barrier in the beginning. So I think there's a big connection between the unhygienic sleep and therefore not reasonable thinking, not able to access our thinking mm. brain um, on a day-to-day basis. And I wonder what what advice could we give to parents who want so dearly to try and advise their children to begin eating healthily, um, get out for their daily walk, break up their day healthily, connect with their friends. I know it has been very difficult mm. now during um, COVID times, but, um, but insofar as it's possible at all, Richard, what very healthy tips and techniques can we recommend that parents yeah. can communicate to their children? I would,
2: I would make sure that I keep talking about food to a minimum, you know, and just live by example and, and, and eat. Uh, most of these stories start off with health, right? Most of these anorexia stories that I hear start off with like a, You know, a healthy routine. That's how it started off, like a a, an interest in healthy food, and it's and it kind of kind of spirals and spirals and spirals and spirals. But it started off with that little seed of we want to be healthy. You know, my mom got me into a healthy regime, and we got me into watching my calories, and we're eating healthy food, and we're eating this, and we're doing that, and and it just becomes more and more and more and more, and then it becomes a pathology, right? And so I would say it's important that your children eat healthily, but you don't want to consume all conversations around it. And so I would be keeping the conversations around food to a minimum and just eating healthily and living healthily to show them always by example. But I think a very important thing is if your child, you were saying there, if the child is, um, you know, unfortunately in in the middle of an eating uh, issue, I would say the first thing you do is you check into your GP, you get them weighed, you get their bloods taken, you you have a look at what's going on because, you know, generally a child who's got a food issue will wear baggy clothes and you you won't see it. And it's very difficult and they're very defensive. And as a parent, you're kind of going, what the hell, she's dropped weight or he's dropped weight, but I can't really see it. So I do think you need to kind of go to a GP and link in with them and get the bloods taken and get the weight taken and see where they are for their age mm-hmm. to get a good, accurate idea about where it's at. But first and foremost, the thing is to have a, a healthy idea around food in the family, not that you're all talking about it and that it's on the fridge and it's always about food and, oh my God, I'm putting on weight, I'm going to go. That it's not like that all the time. If those conversations are present, they're very destructive for a child. And not. not. I'm not, I'm not criticizing being healthy. I'm saying that... In my experience, it normally starts with this health kind of kick and it just pathologizes.
1: Can Yeah, can, can downward spiral can happen from there. So I suppose in relation to um, youngsters whose own habits and patterns have meant that even, for example, as we referenced earlier, they're gaming, for example, and they're gaming so long yeah. that they haven't eaten the sandwich they made themselves earlier. So they get out of the habit of eating and then they need less food in a short, you know, over a period of time. And so it, it can be what precipitates what again being the question, you know, the fact that perhaps they are gaming to that extent and through the night and... Um, and then their appetite is literally just down-regulating. So mm. they're not getting the prompt from their body, that bottom-up reminder that they need food. So again, they, they would have to probably be quite um, realistic and and they would have to decide to eat. So build in a pattern where they will push themselves. Your, your pain will push you, I think, until your wisdom pulls you. So push yourself to get up at that early hour to break those habits and patterns of gaming through the night and... Um, clapsing on your phone all night, not getting your quality sleep, get your early morning looks. I I, pers- I don't know what you think about that, Richard, but I think that is so health It's a really good place to start when you can reset your circadian rhythm on a daily basis. And we have power and control over that. That's not, mother nature mm-hmm. gave us that, you know, you don't need pills and potions for anything. We have neuropharmacology that can sort everything out. It can sort out the inflammation if it happens, if you have an injury Um, it can, Deter chronic ailment as well when when we use it wisely when we understand that our brain is an organ but our mind is a brain is our brain in motion so that's really our body so you know you don't want the servant to become the master if we use our neuropharmacology I I personally think the main thing is get off up at that nice early hour catch the early morning looks catch the the sunlight even through the clouds um, in order to reset your circadian rhythm, and then catch a little bit of sunlight again before the sun goes down. So between two and 10 minutes of sunlight, pick up those light photons um, within two hours of the sun setting. And when you do that at the beginning, when when you bookend your day with that, you're guaranteed over a period of time to set yourself for wellness. And so hopefully then you'd feel hungry at a reasonable hour and you could eat a nice small bite of quality food for health reasons only. You know, you don't have to eat calorific foods. You can stay on that health kick that you were chatting about, but just to keep yourself um, energized for so mm. that you have motivational energy. From your glucose energy, you know that one complements the other. So, Richard, we're fast pro- approaching the end of the show, um, and yeah. I—I want. I, it's been an absolute pleasure. I encourage everybody to um, follow you on LinkedIn, buy your book, keep an eye on the space because I know there's another book um, in the offing. Indeed am I right? There is. Yes. Is indeed,
2: I'm in the middle of writing. It's all about the family and the impact the family has on us.
1: Absolutely. Can I also
2: say, Sheila, people can follow me on Instagram. I'm releasing uh, uh, material every week uh, around all the stuff that we're talking about, giving parents very short, easy to follow, practical tips about building resilience, gaming, all the rest of it on um, at officialrichardhogan.ie or at officialrichardhogan. I'm, I'm still in the email. Place, at official Richard hogan. Uh, You can get me on Instagram.
1: You can. And I'm going to put the links to all of those platforms into the show notes. Richard, just before we go, I always ask my guests to um, have a little think about what whole and one means to them, which is the, the title of this series of podcasts. I wonder, have you had a chance to think of what whole and one means to you?
2: Hole in one. Well, I, I can say it means an awful lot to me. I've I've had a few of them in my golfing experience
1: <laughs> <Well done.
2: laughs> over the years. Um, I suppose when I think of hole in one, I think of like togetherness. Yeah. I, well, I don't, I think, I don't think of H-O-L-E. I think of whole. Oh, yes. I think of whole. You know, I, I think of, um, I think when you feel whole, you know, I think everything is I think everything falls into place. I think when you yeah. have a sense of yourself and that narrative that gets written very early on that's quite negative when you get a when you get a grip on that, you become actually a bit whole i think mm-hmm. I think all those narratives that we develop about ourselves remove us from ourselves and we and I think that's where depression and all that kind of stuff kind of creeps in where we have this really negative self talk that we've developed and I think that's not whole. that's the opposite of it and I think that sense of oneness is when you when you kind of come to yourself. I think being whole is, is what we're all after. I'm not there yet, you know. I'm not there. It's a work in, our, it's a work in progress. In progress. I don't know do you do you ever get there, but the pursuit is certainly certainly worth it. Absolutely. I'm a lot more whole than I was 20 years ago, let's say.
1: Likewise, likewise. That's lo- a lovely take on it, Richard. I would, I would concur. Um, it's definitely something that we need to work on on a daily basis. But I think the bliss is in knowing that it's worth working towards it. Yeah. And as we feel whole within ourselves, then we're able to connect with the universal one. And, th- and that's, I think, what it's all about. I mean, th- there's always that nat- that tiny space, isn't there, where science doesn't understand sure. and uh, exactly. mysticism doesn't oh, understand.
2: But we don't understand the mind either. You know what I mean? It's it's the it's the uncharted territory as, as Hamlet would say. It's it's the one thing that we, we don't really fully understand. We can study all the books. I've read so many books about the brain and all that. We can understand the reason, the regions and what they do, but we don't understand why the mind works and how it works the way it does. Absolutely. It's the most fascinating thing. Can I also just say before we finish, Sheila, that people can check out my webpage on Embrace Philippines. It's a charity that I run. If anyone's interested in getting involved, I work with Bajo children. They're very marginalized children out in the Philippines. They're a beautiful tribe. They live above the shoreline. Incredible people. And that we're building a school at the moment. It's an, ed- it's, an, it's an educational school that's going to be a medical mission and a, and a food mission. So if anyone's interested, they can contact me.
1: Oh, Richard, you're an inspiration. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've checked that out since we last spoke. And it's, um, it's an absolutely fantastic mission. I, I congratulate you and your team. I know it's um, very close to your heart. So anybody who can get involved, I encourage them to do so. Richard, Thank it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, you so very pleasure. much. I look forward to watching this space because I'm looking forward to that next book now. Um, they, your, your first book, Parenting the Screenager, was just phenomenal and definitely uh, not so not to be put down for educators, psychotherapists, and parents. And actually, the you know the young adults themselves has so much to gain because um, there's a, it, it's possible always to reparent, You know, Absolutely. parents will do the very best with the wisdom and knowledge they have at any given time. We won't always get it right. In fact, most of the time we won't get it no. right, but it's everybody not has, perfect. It's not, but everybody, ha- and as you said, perfectionism ruins the world. We don't want to yeah. be bothered with that. Um, you know, we, ha- we can reparent as soon as we realize it's never too late to learn whatever it is we need to know to be the best of ourselves at any given time. Exactly. So, um, Richard, thank you so very much.
2: Thanks very it's much, Sheila. It's
1: been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Guys and gals, I'm going to sign off at this stage. Just remember that um, you can't rewrite the beginning of your story, but you can pick up at any point and write a totally different ending. Tune in every week on Hole in One with Sheila on Voice America's Empowerment Channel. Bye for now. Slán go fóill.
0: Thank you again for joining us for Hole in One. Please join your host, Sheila E. Hirine, for another edition of this amazing program next Wednesday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we meet again, remember no matter the question, love is the answer. You've got this.